Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. How are artists paid for their creativity in the music industry? With so many ways to listen to music on multiple platforms, how to pay the artists needed its own agent. That is why in 2003, SoundExchange was formed to build a simpler way for the music industry to use technology to track and pay artists. SoundExchange is the sole group designated by the government to collect and pay out digital royalties. SoundExchange has paid over $10 billion to 650,000 artists since 2022. Leading this mission is Michael Huffey, SoundExchange president and CEO for over a decade. Under Michael's leadership, yearly royalty collections have skyrocketed from $292 million to over a billion dollars. Michael and I talk about how his focus is on having artists paid in the entire music landscape. Outside Sound Exchange, Michael teaches intellectual property law. With Michael at the helm alongside his driven team, Sound Exchange brings technology solutions to creators to identify and track music, oversee rights, and payments that will be even more important in the age of AI. Mike, thank you for being a guest today on Explain to Shane. I am so excited about this episode because I have been so befuddled by how people in the music industry are paid for their their the work they do, especially artists. So we're going to just dive right in here because this is one of these things. I've listened to previous podcasts by people in the industry, and the fact that FM radio, AM radio which still exists because the FCC says it has to. Um, I'm a big Spotify listener. There was a time in my life where I was a big Apple music listener. There are Pandora out there and they all get paid differently. And I ju- that is, seems like an accountant's dream. I just, other than the accounting industry, who thinks that's a good idea? Well, it helps the lawyers too. As a recovering oh. lawyer, I can say that. Okay, and okay, by the way, fair. it's a pleasure, pleasure to be here. Thank you for, uh, thank you welcome. for having me. Absolutely. Um, these are, these are very interesting topics and interesting times for sure. And we're rolling into the Grammys, which is always super exciting. Yes. And I've had the good fortune of going twice, thanks to my lovely friend, Meredith Baker, and it was a real delight. And now it's, I never uh, miss it. it. It's it's a good show. It's a very good show. That, uh, and they, you know, not, not only is it, you know, music's biggest night, as they call it, um, but the combinations that they do and the pairings that they do, really, really creative uh, talent to begin with. And then you put interesting, interesting groups together for performances. It's always a special night. And it's live. I mean, they had their little moment. They got over that. And, and it is truly like a reading about how I'm not you know, getting off topic now, but the whole production of that is, you know, it just reminds you what it takes to be a live artist. It's it's a pretty amazing thing. Yeah. Yeah. But you are correct that um, that the music industry is a it's a complicated business for sure. Um, you know, we'll get into it. But a lot of the systems and um, organizations and the way the workflow happens are based on a business model that, you know, doesn't really exist as much anymore as it used to. And um, I, uh, I, I teach a law school class on music law, and I t- and there's this chart I have that I put up the first day to sort of explain how the, you know, at a high level how the music industry works and what the different entities do. And I tell them all they're lucky it's law school and not business school, because if it was business school and you designed an industry that way, you might not design it exactly that way from scratch. So it can be, it can be tricky for sure. So the one thing I remember in the correct parts of this that are correct or wrong is that um, Neil Diamond gets money every time UB40's Red Red Wine is played because he wrote the song. Yeah. But does but if it's on FM, UB40 does not receive any royalties. Is that correct? 
That uh, that is correct. Um, okay, my, my wanna... head is my head feels good about that. I well, remember you, that one correctly. The way so to th- the, you yeah. know, the, the way to think about it is, you know, it um, in the music industry for almost everything you do, um, you know, it's like the game of baseball where you you know have a ball and a bat, right? You need them both to play the game of baseball, um, but they're completely separate products with different characteristics, different P and Ls, different companies. And in the music industry, it's kind of the same. You have the song, so the, the notes, the lyrics, the tablature, you know, the chord progressions, what a songwriter does. You know, that's one product. And you take that song and you have somebody perform it and turn it into a sound recording, and that's a separate product. And for most every, almost everything in the music industry, you need permission for to use those two things, but you go to different people to get them. You pay different people. Uh, and that's part of at the heart of what a lot of the complexity is and and the example you gave. Um, so for instance, um, uh, on FM radio, uh, which, which is, we are, it's very unusual, but when you hear a recording on FM radio, so when you hear Red Red Wine by UB40, um, the songwriter does get paid. Radio has to pay the songwriter. They have to pay for that one part of the product, but they don't have to pay for the sound recording. Uh, and that's a huge aberration around the world in almost every other industrialized country in the world, every other democracy in the world when radio plays. You know, I always use the example of R.E.S.B.C.T. by Aretha Franklin. You know, do you know who wrote that song? No, I don't. Otis Redding. Okay. So Otis Redding wrote the song. Aretha Franklin sang sang the recording major, that you know. Major justice to it, yeah. Major justice. Mm-hmm. And when you hear that on FM... Uh, FM radio only has to pay Otis Redding or his estate. They don't have to pay Aretha Franklin. Uh, and um, and your your previous comment there is that, that this is something that is in the United States specifically? Specifically in the United okay. States. It is, uh, I would argue, the greatest inec- one of the greatest inequities in the music industry. Um, and, with, you know, it costs um, all American artists money not only here, but it also costs them money overseas because since – our radio doesn't pay performing artists in the U.S. Many overseas countries use that as an excuse to not pay Americans. So, oh, for instance, okay. yeah. when you're if you're sitting at a cafe in in uh, France, you know, in Paris, and you hear Bruce Springsteen come over, there's a royalty that gets paid, but it never works its way to Bruce Springsteen because we don't pay artists here. So, this is something Sound Exchange and the whole industry has been working on for a long time. We have. Uh, legislation in Congress right now called the American Music Fairness Act. And it is basically an attempt to level the playing field and get radio to pay for both parts of the music, pay the songwriter as they should and do, but also to pay the performer because it's the performer that brings the song to life. It's the performer that creates the recording that you're listening to that comes out of the speakers or out of your headset. So uh, we have we have legislation in Congress uh, trying to get that that to happen. Um, so why is Congress involved? Well, Congress is involved because of copyright law, right? Okay. So a lot of these things are driven by federal copyright law. It's not everything we talk about today is probably not going to necessarily be copyright law. There, especially when we get to AI, there's other parts of the law that come in. But copyright law is what sets the rules of the road for how uh, how creators can utilize their creations, and that doesn't. It's not just music. It's Movies and photographers, you know, book authors, they all rely very heavily on copyright law to protect what it is they create. 
And, you know, that's how they make a living. It's what incentivizes them to create. That's one of the things that fascinates me about intellectual property. Um, you know, people talk about this, this, this big grandiose term, and it's, it, it's interesting because when you think about IP, it's something you can't touch, you can't hold, you know, you can't place it down or give it to somebody else. But Congress created this property right in it so that we would all, we as a culture would have incentive to invest in it and create all the things that it creates. And, and, you know, right now we're talking about music so people can actually become professional musicians and create music we all love. But that applies to all the patents that we use. And, you know, the pharmaceutical industry would never invest in the research that it would invest in if there wasn't a means to protect it. So intellectual property is this this great cultural concept that uh, that you know, as a policy matter, allows all of those creative industries to get a return on their investment. Basically, is there a model that you recommend somebody that's doing it correctly? In terms of um, payment for the artist, well, um, it's a you know how artists get paid right now is uh, streaming is a big part of the recorded music industry right now. Uh, 85% of the U.S. recorded music industry is from streaming. Think about that for a minute, 85%. And the whole industry was built around a different model, right? So if we were having this podcast 30 years ago, we first off, we wouldn't call it a podcast. <laughs> we talk radio, and we'd we have to be radio. on uh, somewhere on the dial, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for the many, many decades, for the uh, the beginning of the music industry, everything was built on a sales model, right? The industry was fed and fueled by people buying, you know, 45s or 33s or CDs, um, you know, records or CDs. And for several decades, the industry built up around things that drove sales. So artists went on tour. Why did you tour? You would tour to sell more records. You would get on the radio to sell more records. You might, you know, have an appearance at a local, you know, whatever it is, a local uh, venue or coffee house or whatever in order to sell records. Everything you did even to promote yourself as an artist was really to get people to buy records because the vast majority of money that came into the recorded music side anyway was through sales. And that's just not the case anymore. 80, as I said, 85% is streaming and you can think of streaming as renting, right? You're not buying anything, you're renting the music. And, but yet all of those organizations and industry groups and really the whole way that we do business as an industry uh, comes from those early days in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s when everything was to drive sales. As you probably know now, um, you know, artists tour in and of themselves. Touring can be a very profitable endeavor. Taylor Swift's tour, I think, has already passed the $1 billion mark uh, or is due to, to pass the $1 billion mark. So artists tour now. Um, they make money in other ways through promotions, through branding. You know, the artists are brands now. They're not just people that sing, sing, sing the songs you love. They are, you know, their whole brands about them. They have perfume lines and clothing lines and get in movies. So art, being an artist today is is not just about plugging your music and recording great music. Many artists today have whole brands built up around them. And I, I guess I'm going back to the genesis of why FM is different in a legacy perspective is that there is, you went live and then the FM radio was considered part of a marketing program. Is that? Well, initially uh, there was okay. a fight to get FM to pay. Okay. So 
this is actually a very interesting story. Think about before the recording industry. So radio, the radio industry in the U.S. grew up a little earlier than the recording industry, right? So if you look at the 20s, 10, 20s, 30s, that's when radio started to take off. And the, the recorded, it, recording industry and record labels were just sort of getting going in, by, the, by the 30s. So, you know, there's a very famous case from the 19, 1937 where, you, you know, you had – think of an old-time radio station and uh, they would – if they wanted to perform music, it would have to be live because they didn't really have records. So they would bring in a band, you know, maybe a tiny orchestra, and they'd have them stand around a mic coming down from the, from the ceiling – and they'd have to pay them every week to come in and play. There's a very famous one where Ford, Ford Company, as part of a radio program, would pay this one band $13,500 every week to come in, which was a lot of money back then, by the way. It's a lot of money now, actually. <laughs> you know, over thirteen grand to come in every week, perform live, and they would broadcast it out. And then all of a sudden, this technology brought along these little black discs that you could buy for 75 cents. And radio said, wait a minute, I could buy that disc for 75 cents. Why would I have you come in every week? And just play it, play it, play it. So the the earliest records, Mm -hmm. actually many of them had on them not authorized for radio play. Because Mm -hmm. the performing artists back then, you know, they got the joke and they they knew what was going to happen. And when they recorded that album, they did it with the expectation that radio would not be allowed to then go ahead and just take that album and you be done with ever hiring live performers. So that's when the battle started all the way back in the 1930s. And there were cases that went both ways, but ultimately the, um, the way the law shook out was there was no performance, right? We call it a performance, right? In recordings, the way the law shook out, um, it became sort of accepted that, that federal back then, a lot of the state laws and now federal laws at one point it became covered by federal law does not have a performance right for sound recordings for FM radio. Um, They do have it in other places like online. So when you stream, this will blow your mind even more. When you you hear that song on FM radio, so we'll take my example of RESPCT, Aretha Franklin. When you hear that on FM radio and, and a royalty goes to Otis Redding, who wrote the song, but not to Aretha Franklin, you push a different button on your dashboard and now you start streaming from your phone now it's a digital transmission Mm -hmm. all of a sudden aretha does get paid so in the digital world there is a performance right for sound recordings when it's digitally streamed but there is not one when it's over an fm radio wave and I hope this is apparent that makes absolutely no sense. Whether or not the performer gets paid depends on which button you push on your dashboard is crazy. So that is why, and not to mention, it's just completely unfair. You have a $12 billion FM radio industry that is making its money off the music and they're not paying the recording artists that create their main input. It's, it's, you know, it's completely inappropriate, unfair. It's anti-capitalistic. It's anti-labor. It's anti-fairness. And most importantly, or as importantly, it means that Congress is basically picking and choosing which platforms have to pay for what. So you're, you're giving radio this huge benefit over all the other platforms that, in fact, do have to pay the artist. So is your end goal parity between some of the digital versus 
I'm going to call it analog, but you know, that's digital too these days. The end goal is, uh, is leveling the playing field and making the same rules apply to FM radio that apply to basically almost all the other music delivery formats that consumers use now. So, you know, the songwriter and the performer gets paid on digital streaming. They get paid from satellite radio, Sirius XM. They both get paid when you listen to, um, music on your cable TV channels. So it's analog radio, FM, AM, FM, analog radio has this grandfathered loophole uh, that they've been, you know, capitalizing on for decades. And obviously they're fighting this. Uh, They fight us in Congress because every year they avoid getting this condition applied to them is hundreds of millions of dollars they save. So... So they have a financial interest to, to, to try to fight this bill. But morally, I think it's pretty obvious what the right outcome should be. So let's move to the next segment of challenges, which is now we introduce artificial intelligence into this. And we have the idea of um, you, you know, people using a sound like. And you know, in part of this, I, I realize there's a huge thing about like especially DJ music because people are like, eh, it doesn't really – it, it, you know, it has a beat, but it, it isn't like 100 percent the exact same as like, you know, sounding like you know, Frank Sinatra or something like that. But right. so how do you manage knowing you just all the stuff you just talked about and that, you know, like correcting from the past, we'll call it, you know, this what what it used to be. And, and then we got you know digital rights with something like Spotify or, you know, Pandora, which I realize also still have two weird. We don't have to go into that completely, but you know, they, they get paid differently. So um, how do you protect the artists when it comes to artificial intelligence? Yeah, artificial intelligence is, is it's it is mind numbing how quickly it has taken hold. I mean, what was it? Fifteen months ago, that ChatGPT first, you know, entered the common parlance around Thanksgiving, I think, a year ago. And I mean, now you can't hardly have a conversation uh, like this or see any panel at any conference where AI is not a topic. So I have never seen a topic take hold of public discussion as as rapidly as this one well i think it's the comfort you know it's it, the old overarching theme of the machines are taking over in my yes. in my mind it's a good thing because the machines do a pretty damn good job yeah but you know that we don't want them to take over everything and then there's certain parts that we say the machines are going to have to be like everyone else and they're going to have to pay some respect to somebody else along the, the process and that is exactly respect was the word that i was going to use when you say how to protect artists or really all creators um i would say um, you have to respect the creators that form the foundation of a lot of these large language models and and respect what they contribute and make sure that they participate properly, right? I, I like you, I agree. AI has a lot of really interesting, positive, cool things it can do for the music industry, let alone healthcare and education and all of that. Let's just talk about the music industry and we'll keep, we can get to those in a minute. But you asked about create, uh, protecting creators. At the end of the day, they are trained on these huge swaths of copyrighted content, right? So um, they go out and they scrape all these sound recordings and photographs that are copyrighted and protected. And uh, we think it's pretty clear that if you're going to go and copy all of those for a commercial purpose, to then create this, these AI companies, the way to protect creators is to respect them and bring them into the process. Um, there's something I do that I talk about the three C's, you know, um, consent, credit, and compensation. It's okay 
to use creative works and use other people's songs or recordings or pictures or photos. But you need to get permission to do that and have them share in in the wealth that you're going to create. These AI companies are going to be make so much money, make so much wealth. It's only fair that when they build their learning models off and their algorithms off of this copyrighted content that they allow those creators to participate in some of that revenue at a fair, at a fair point. You know, I mean, it's not, not it's all, all companies have a right to try to make a profit and earn money on their own. I respect that, but, um, but you can't leave the creators in the dust. And, and eventually if no creator can ever uh, count on being able to make a living on what, off what it is they create, we're not going to have any more creations, right? So at a kind of a philosophical level. So, so uh, understanding so, you've got your lawyer hat on, you yeah. know, at the same time, but you appreciate the creation. So what rights and frameworks exist to protect copyright when it comes to this? And is there a point where it's considered unlawful or is it just unfortunate? Yeah, well, all of this is being, you know, fought in the courts right now. So, um, you know, I have my own personal views, not only as a lawyer, but as what I do in the music industry. Um, I think, you know, some things are obviously, we have a stronger case. Other things, there may be a gray area because they've never been been questioned before. Um, and, and a lot of it involves copyright, like we talked about. So is it lawful to scrape copyrighted content to create a commercial database that you then monetize, we would say no, but that's being fought in the courts. Is the output of the creative, you know, when when AI pushes something out you know, the the back end based on on a query, what's the status of that in terms of copyright law? You know, and there's also issues about like right of publicity. So you've no doubt heard about some of the sound alike AI sound alike fakes that that happen on. Uh, online, you know, the weekend and Drake had a very famous one uh, a few months back. I think yeah, that the was fake one of the Drake. ones. The yeah. fake Drake, you know, and and that's not just about copyright. That's also about what I would call a right of publicity. If you're doing that, you know, artists artists aren't just about singing, as I mentioned earlier. It's about the persona that they create and who they are. If you're creating a fake Drake track, you're doing that to try to capitalize on the Drake brand and capitalize on Drake's listeners that he has built up over years. And, you know, those are things even bigger than copyright. Those are things we would call like a right of publicity. Name, image, and likeness is another term that you hear a lot. You hear a lot in sports right now because now college players are getting paid for their, you know, their name, image, and likeness. So there's actually uh, two pieces of legislation in Congress right now to create a federal right in that regard too. It's not even copyright. It has to do with protecting a performer's voice or their image or their likeness. Um, so, it, you know, in terms of what's legal and not legal, there's a lot of dispute in the courts right now. We, I have my belief on what I think the copyright law clearly allows and doesn't allow, but um, but it's going to be several years till that's all worked out. And what? there's there's other things that be done, can be done to protect artists, though. Um, what I would love is AI companies that lean into the creative process. You know, hey, how about you recognize what, artists and other creators bring to the table and work with them rather than against them, license them, talk with them about things. And you see other areas in Congress or other proposals in Congress to help make sure we have responsible AI. Uh, so things like, uh, do they, they need to make sure and 
put a marker on things? These are suggestions that have been made. Do they put a marker on things that have been created by AI? So, you know, it's an AI creation as opposed to a human creation, you know, kind of like buying genes that aren't made with child labor, you know, or, or diamonds that aren't blood diamonds, right? Um, similar thing. You could imagine a world where uh, we have people who maybe gravitate toward AI-created works. You have other people who want to sign up for human-created things. Maybe they should mark uh, what's AI-created, what's not. Perhaps they should be requirements around saving all the data and metadata around what they scrape so that when we have settle out how we uh, – whenever we, we finalize how we can reward creators, there's a method to do that. Uh, and there's also recommendations in Congress about – you know, putting some requirements on AI where they have to self AI companies where they have to self-report about privacy and you know um, uh, some of the dangerous things that AI can do. And we have a reporting structure where it's some regulation so that we have responsible actors in the AI companies. What about catalogs? So it was a big. I remember during COVID, maybe because we were so much time to pay attention to the news. Right. Um, I feel like was it Bruce Springsteen and maybe Sting sold their entire catalog. Does that make a difference when they somebody comes in and says, "I'm buying, I'm buying you out, right? Yeah. You can keep going, but I'm going to give you." It would seem like an astronomical number. I was like a half a billion dollars. I mean, it was like something that, huge, right? That, they that's got. about exactly right for Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't a one-time <laughs> payment, but still a lot of money. So that is a very interesting development in the past three years, four years in the industry. Royalty streams have become an asset class. So you have very big players in the investment market, private equity firms, who are, are investing in the royalty streams of a variety of artists and songwriters. And I actually think that's a very positive sign. It's a, you know, it tells you that, uh, that those investors see growth in the music industry. They see music increasing in value. Um, they see more and more ways that people are going to start using music, and AI probably is part of that. By the way, um, you know, there's there's a, there's interesting things in the music realm that AI can do that we probably nobody thought of five years ago, ten years ago. So um, yeah, this this concept of royalties as an asset class is a fascinating fascinating development. I love the idea of a bunch of people showing up to Davos because like they're they're asked, you know, Goldman Sachs is like, hey. Show up, right? You know, <laughs> come on over. Um, that's fantastic. This has been amazing. You're just, you're, I know it's just the the very tip of the iceberg here, and we could go on for hours. But um, it's a it's a taste test of what you are dealing with. And thank you for helping the artists get part of what they work passionately for. Um, I know that you've got a lot ahead of you on that. Any any last last thoughts for the listeners? Um, well, I, I would just say that um, you know the important thing about AI, since we spent so much time on that, is um, it, it, we need to, it need, we need to have responsible AI. We need to have, make sure that creators are protected, but we also need to be mindful that there are interesting things they can bring to the industry. I mean, there, there's examples. I mean, the Beatles just dropped their last right. track because of AI, right? Resurrecting some John Lennon, uh, uh, some John, early John Lennon recordings that weren't fit for prime time and they used AI to bring them around. Um, you have examples of, you know, very well-known, Artists who maybe have lost their voice due to an accident, AI now allows them to perform again. Um, there's a lot of really fast, you know, and obviously the the resurrection of, of of artists who no longer are with us now performing in holograms on stage. Uh, it's just it's going to be a very interesting world as AI starts to intersect with the music industry. So let's recognize there's some interesting things that that are coming 
they just not they just need to launch with the appropriate respect and uh, for creators and what they add to the process. Well, Mike, we're going to stay in touch because is, we're, we're going to be a little bit like your occasional student who's going to want to keep up on what's <laughs> going on on this. And there's a lot going on in this space. There is a lot. We just scratched the surface. Yep. All right. Well, thank you for being a guest on Explain to Shane today. Thank you so much for having me. You have a very good day. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.